Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Um, something that uh, exists in a number of different organizations, different versions of, and it's called a culture guide. And we've been talking about this for years, just the idea of really just naming. There's something powerful when you put a name to something, whether it's a way that we do things, a way that we talk about things, why we talk about things the way that we do, how we think about uh, going about our regular rhythm in the life of the church. And then one of the folks in, this, in the meeting said, Andrew, I think we also need to put like a glossary in there. And I was like, oh yeah, for sure. There's terms and things that a lot of people maybe wouldn't get at first blush or understand at all. And they were like, no, 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 I don't mean like that. I mean like we actually need an asterisk or a glossary section just for you and your little colloquialisms, your little phrases. And then of course, because my just staff honors me like really just deeply and wonderfully. Um, <laughs> they really do. Um, they uh, began to uh, launch into all these kind of funny, quirky things that I say. And I was, I was laughing because most of them had to do with music references, right? So when Andrew mentions, you know, Johnny Cash, Sophie and Stevens, Bono, when he gives that diatribe, this is what he's doing. Bach, that's always in there, thank you. Um, when Andrew does mention St. Bono, he is um, not referring to an, an actual ancient church father, nor um, like Sonny Bono. Uh, he's referring for all the Gen Z folks out there to the lead singer of the greatest band in the world. Whenever Andrew mentions St. Tom York and the phrase, everything in its right place, this is a reference to a Radiohead album. The first song on that album, Everything in Its Right Place, feels like a nice, kitschy, grabby way to describe the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to announce that the kingdom of God is here and present. And one way you could basically describe the kingdom of God is everything in its right place. And they went on and on. And so many of the references were musical ones. I was laughing and feeling very sort of loved and embarrassed at how old I'm getting. Um, <laughs> it's a bit hard uh, to know me uh, well uh, without knowing my like deep love for music, my desire to write and perform and create and listen to it nonstop. I'm the guy who has like record listening parties, like a new record comes out, let's just come over and sit quietly with the lyrics printed out and just light a candle and then listen to the album. That, that's me. I don't know if you have somebody in your life like that. I'm now that guy in your life. Um, <laughs> it's a bit hard to know. And it's a bit hard to now know God without knowing what he loves. It can be challenging, as Adam just described what this first seek season is all about, to speak about encountering God without knowing what he's up to. Or to put it another way, what an encounter with the tangible presence of God might entail. And this is really what we're doing this season is turning our attention to something that we, we, we need to do all year long, but there's something about the beginning of the new year where we go, hey, first things first, let's remember what it is to seek God and his kingdom because this is what we're commanded to do. 
the beginning of all questions around dealing with depression, anxiety, the hauntingness of like materialism in our world, the, 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 the insecurity we feel about provision uh, for so many of us, uh, what it is to get our calling right, not feeling listless. We're told very clearly the beginning of all of that is seek first the kingdom of God and all that other stuff will be added unto you. Like it'll all find its proper place. Life is not about balance. Life is about priority. Amen. I do not like the word balance. It's about prioritizing and things find their proper place versus trying to juggle some sense of everything, just sort of, you know, equal forces moving back and forth. This is what God is inviting us to do. And so this season, we want to seek first him. And to seek first him is to turn our attention and our heart whether we feel like it or not, to turn our attention and our heart toward God, to put our affections and our mind on God. That is the best probably definition of seeking God that is called from both the Old and the New Testament. Setting our hearts and minds on God. And as we do that, we get reminded that God invites us to do that. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. I'm here. I've given all that can be given. I have come near. You're the one that's far off. And that's not in a shameful, guilty way. It's just simply an acknowledgement that we are prone to wander. Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. So draw near to me and you will be amazed at what you find. And one of the things you'll find is the tangible presence of God. And one way we can begin to recognize God, recognize his presence. One thing that seems to unlock God's heart, one way that we hear the signal through all the noise in our life is by becoming more and more aware of what God is actually up to. And one of those things is a beast of a topic that I almost bailed on preaching on today because there's so many different ways to go at this, but is the topic of healing. Jesus was a great preacher and a great teacher but he spends most of his time delivering and healing. Just by pure numbers, this is what he does. The reason he often gives any verbal explanation of anything is to explain why he just did the healing or some sort of deliverance that he just did. When we talk about the ministry of Jesus, some of us are prone to go right to MLK, which is for sure a part of it. Joining God in the renewal of all things is a central biblical mandate. We're told to partner with God and we know that God, Jesus is on the throne making all things new. And so many of us go right to justice, the work of justice in the world. And this is absolutely critical. Many of us go to what we need to help people recognize in their soul that they are far from God as if these two things are on opposite sides of the aisle. But we know as followers of Jesus, there is no transformation of society and of the cultural wrecking, the cultural wreckage in our world, the systematic brokenness and systematic sin and systematic racism that exists in our world. Pick your thing without the soul. These two things work hand in hand. And Jesus, his ministry, as followers of Jesus, we want to do the things that he did understanding that that's how we make all things new. And so we have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus spends most of his time healing. That's how he brings about heaven. That's how he announces the kingdom. That's how he is making all things new. Now, I don't need to say this, but healing is complex. 
Each one of us comes to the conversation with, I'm sure, different experiences, different expectations. At times, it is awe-inducing and often just breathtakingly beautiful and personal. And sometimes it is gut-wrenching and feels hopeless. And for most of us, healing comes with a layer of questions. When does it happen? How do miracles work? Why does it happen for some people and not for others? Is it only for the soul or is it also for the body? And while it would be great to be able to answer each of these questions, and there are answers, the truth is there's no real biblical formula for healing, which is kind of a bummer. It's being honest. <laughs> there is no one-size-fits-all situation, which means that if we're going to get anywhere in understanding and experiencing this thing that God does and this gift that apparently some people can wield. We're going to have to move from asking how and why to asking what. What does healing feel like? And at least being able to touch on what is it for. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark 5. Mark 5. We're going to start in verse 21. How are we feeling on this dreary January day? We all right? Good? Allison, I need you for this one, for this teaching, all right? Anybody else who comes from that tradition that can talk me down, I'm going to need you. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed, had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. A synagogue leader falls at this traveling rabbi's feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. Earnestly is a word that comes up again and again in the New Testament. Earnestly seek God. Be people of passion and zeal. Don't be a New Englander. I'm kidding. We New Englanders have zeal. We just bury it under the snow. Earnestly earnestly seek him. My little daughter is dying. We don't know if there's tears in his eyes here, but I'm just going to guess. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. There were large crowds everywhere Jesus went. And commentator after commentator after commentator discusses why, discusses that the reason for this was clearly the fact that he was healing. They were signs to reinforce with power what he was explaining. Again and again and again, and the crowds grew, and the crowds grew. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 12 years, this woman's been sick. And bleeding carries all sorts of connotations with it that we don't have time to get into. But what you need to know is she would not have been allowed to worship in the temple. She's on the outside. One scholar says Near, nearly all of Jesus' healings all seem to be about healing something that would have kept them out of the synagogue or out of, of being um, 
uh, abiding with the larger family, kept them on the outside with these cultural religious rules. It was these ways of bringing people in almost every time. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She'd been going to the doctor for years, taking medicine, trying new things. She started with traditional medicine, maybe, you know, and ends in like Reiki, I don't know. <laughs> had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she gets worse. Is this anyone else's story? And when she heard about Jesus, I mean, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touched his clothes, I'll be healed. I guess this rabbi's got it going on. Maybe she knew about the ancient prophecy that like just the hem of, of the Messiah's garment would heal. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I get to take liberties with the text because I have the microphone. You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? The disciples are like, what's going on? Dude, there's like thousands of people around. What do you mean, who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell just like Jairus at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Again, if you know the Jewish context here, many writers have said it's as if Jesus looked down and said, daughter, you're clean. You're clean. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. So this delay, we're to assume maybe, maybe Jesus would have gotten there in time, but we hear from some of the other leaders, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Like it's over, man, the story's over. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. This came back from a funeral of a good friend, like a dear friend. And I was, got to lead a couple songs in the service, and there was this moment where... Um, it's a long backstory, but the short version is I sang this one chorus at the end of the songs I was meant to sing, and it was the chorus that myself and probably about 100 people in that room had all sung together at this camp, which is what bound us all together, this summer camp that we went to. And so I start singing this chorus. Let this good life be the life I lead. I was one line in, and you could hear the moans. It's like the whole room went full like Irish funeral for a minute. Like just wailing and groaning and aching and crying. And there was some like joy of like, thank you, God. My, my friend Lauren, she's a follower of Jesus. She's in heaven. So there was some rejoicing and then there was groaning and pain and ache. Her husband, who was there in the front row, just doubled over. There was wailing and commotion. 
Jesus went in and said to them, child is not dead, but asleep. And they all laughed at him. We'll come back to this in a minute. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And then he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus' best miracles always end with food. That is why I am a follower of Jesus. <laughs> he rises from the dead. Anybody got any breakfast? I got some fish. I want to talk about four words. Hoping, confronting, waiting, and laughing. I think this will help us as a church lean deeper in to the subject of healing, I hope. <laughs> Hoping. Christian view of hope is the confident expectation that God has got this. The confident expectation that God has got this. It's not just wishing the best. Hope was all Jarius had. Hope was the starting point for healing. Hope calls us towards risk. By hoping, you are opening yourself up to the possibility of what? Yeah, disappointment, pain. So let's just start with the big question. <laughs> Why are some people not healed? I remember sitting in my living room over on the west side on Hammond Street with a friend of mine who just found out that the baby in her belly, baby in her womb, was, um, was functionally brain dead. And I gathered around with some of the most mature followers of Jesus, faith-filled men and women that I knew, and we prayed, and we prayed. And I swear to you, you could feel, it was like a being like near an electric plant, like the power was palpable. And I want this story to end with, and she was healed, the baby in her belly, and she wasn't. Wasn't healed. I don't know why she wasn't healed. I do know that moment created so much hunger in not just me, but in my friend. God was with us in a way that I felt probably only about a dozen times in my life. That environment of faith was safe for the spirit to move and minister to us, but I don't know why in that moment, God, well, he, uh, this baby wasn't healed. Malia wasn't healed. I'll say this. Why, about why. We don't share the gospel with people because they might reject it. We don't not serve the poor because people might view us as being self-righteous. Right? We do it out of love. We don't not love our enemies because it's really hard and we might experience deep pain. So just because people aren't always healed doesn't mean we shouldn't hope and shouldn't pray for it. By hoping, you are always opening yourself up to the possibility of disappointment. But it also opens you up to the possibility of healing. Anybody like about throw up the first time they had to invite a, a, a girl or boy to a dance? Yeah. <laughs> I thought of myself as so like 
like, I was kind of, I was really cocky and kind of, I was first born and I don't know, I just had a little like, little chip on my shoulder. And then when it came time to ask Megan Gardner to homecoming, buckled, wrote it out like six times what I was going to say on the phone, on the phone. At least it wasn't like now, it's like texting, like, like text back wire and, um, <laughs> and she said no. <laughs> she was already going with somebody else. It's all right. My day ended up being cuter anyway. Without putting myself out there though, without risking, without any sense of hope, right? There was no date. We know that God is looking for a relationship, looking for intimacy, looking for trust, looking for faith. Maybe, honestly, this is why people's faith seems to unlock the heavens. He's looking for people who actually trust him to do what he said he could do. However this sorts out, hope is always the baseline for the miracle. Hope was the baseline for Martin Luther King Jr. Just look, just Google hope and MLK and begin to read his writings. Not people's commentary on him, read what he wrote. His sermon after sermon after sermon that he would give on hope. It was hope that drove him to look at the impossible mountain and go with my arms wide open, my hands wide open, I will climb this mountain. It was hope that led him to entertain the possibility of a miracle, of a healing of a nation and an evil system that he was confronting. If you want to know what healing feels like, Tyler Staten says, you have to know what hoping feels like. If you want to know what healing feels like, you have to know what hoping feels like. This is Jarius falling to his knees. Please, please, please. You can hear and feel the hope pouring out of his body because it's no, it was no secret that Jesus was a healer. And healing was and is a marker of God's presence and that future healing in heaven that God wants to do. It was a marker and a sign again and again. More on that in a moment. Healing always starts with hoping which has this way of revealing our humanity. It has this way of revealing our dependence and calling us to risk a belief that God just might change something. Or, and what I want to keep kind of seeding into this talk, is that we know and trust God ultimately will change everything and he might give us a glimpse or a sign that will invite more people home. So why was Jesus healing? This may be sort of intuitive, but I felt I needed to do this. To answer this, we've got to know the whole story. God made the world good. It's the only story of all the great faiths and religions and secular ideologies that actually begins with goodness. We talk about original sin. We need to talk first about original goodness. God made the world good. The Bible starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. We were made in the image of God. And the story, this ancient story, wherever you find yourself in believing the Adam and Eve story, the beauty is this more than literal truth of the Adam and Eve story. Is It's not just that it happened, it's that it keeps happening again and again. We choose to trust ourselves instead of trusting God and our maker. 
again and again. And sin enters the world again and again. And sin enters through a person and then it makes its way into a system. I've always struggled with Christians who don't get systemic racism. I don't get it. I don't get it simply because from before that phrase even came into my nomenclature, I was taught this in Sunday school. Yes, the personal heart sins, but then that sin makes its way into decisions like where housing lines are drawn or how people are treated makes its way into how we distribute money or think about all these things. This should be central, central, because it is central to the biblical story. And so, <laughs> this sin that has entered the world and has permeated system after system, described throughout the Old Testament again and again and again, disrupts and destroys. Sin, you could say, is everything outside of the perfect world that we were meant to enjoy forever. It's the dysfunction you inherited from your parents. It's the hard and horrible things that they did to you. It's the ways that you hurt and you victimize others or participate in systems that do, intentionally or unintentionally. Most importantly, sin is the source of pain and suffering and death. It's not just a moral reality we all face, but it's the air we breathe in a fallen world. And this is not just a Christian idea, it's a human reality. In Romans, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everyone, this is our bent. Paul tells us that all then who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in the scriptures, there's no doubt that salvation is not a one-time event. We celebrate and mark that first time that someone might raise a hand in church or that moment like sitting beside the ocean with a friend and you pray, God, I want you to be Lord of my life. We celebrate that moment. But you would not hear because you don't hear. Paul asked the question, when did you get saved? Because for Paul and the church father, salvation, yes, begins in some way at a point, but it is an ongoing process that moves from baptism into death. For them, salvation was not just, a, was not just transaction, but it was ongoing transformation. It was not just a moment of pardon but a life of deepening union. It was not a change just, simply just in legal status, though that's part of it. It was the healing of the soul. Ignatius of Antioch and so many others called Jesus the, in the first century the doctor of the soul. They understood salvation to be a kind of healing and formation that started with you, but that salvation in the same way sin moved as we sing in joy to the world, his love and mercies flow. What's the line? Far as the curse is found. Far as sin and brokenness and systemic evil is found, this is what God is up to in the world, healing and putting all things back together that are broken. The kingdom of God that Jesus announced is the crashing in of the way things were meant to be. The future healing comes racing back into the present, if you were to believe it. 
Jesus says, I'm gonna show you what heaven looks like, what everything put back together, what every person I have ever met, atheist or devout religious follower wants in the world is everything put back together. And Jesus says, I wanna show you what it looks like, show you how to live into that now, show you how to welcome more people home, even in the midst of the brokenness and death that's still in the world. And then ultimately, I'm gonna do the definitive act and we're all going to live forever with him. That's good news for somebody. I don't know how some preachers do that, like the whole sermon. <laughs> Jesus forgives sin, right? But that's not all. The psalmist says he forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. But Jesus summed up his ministry saying, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then the end of the story, as I just said, is God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death. The old order will pass away. Healing with God, shalom. Healing in our relationships, shalom. Healing of our own soul, shalom. And healing and rightness with the whole earth. Healing is not a passive reality. It is an affront to death. Which if you're taking notes, hoping leads to confronting. Number two, confronting. Healing confronts darkness and sin. It confronts all that was and is broken. Confronting is a declaration of war. First John, it says, Jesus, the son of man came. Jesus came to crush the, the, the devil, to crush the power of the devil. For some reason, the verse gets skipped over often. This was why Jesus came, it says in the Bible, was actually to crush sin and death. It's a declaration of war, pushing back darkness with love, with sacrificial love of the cross, so pure that it heals. And so in this story in Jairus, the story of Jairus and the healing of this 12-year-old child, at one particular moment, Jesus is bringing again into the present the healing and restoration that is ultimately coming in heaven. To know healing and confront evil, though, is also a risk. Because God may want to do something else. This was the thing that unlocked and tempered my sort of frustration with why God didn't heal people. God may want to do something else. God ultimately wants to see everyone healed. But in this moment, God may be doing something else because we know God will ultimately heal everyone and everything. When we have the vision of a larger story of God renewing and restoring all things, God using healing, he will use it to comfort, yes, but he will use it ultimately as a sign of the kingdom of God. And it changes how we view those times that God doesn't heal. Remember, Jesus weeps over his friend Lazarus when he dies and then heals him the next moment. There's a whole sermon there. Or when Jesus is in the garden and he's about to go to his death and his body cries out, Lord, I don't want to go on the cross. Fully human and fully God. I think that's that fully human part coming, screaming out. I don't want to die in probably one of the worst ways that humanity has ever cooked up to kill somebody to this day. And then he says what? Not my will, but yours be done. It's not a cop out to pray not my will, but yours be done. We hold these things in tension. God knows his ultimate will is to heal, but ultimately as the follower of Jesus, more than we want the immediate comfort in that moment, we can know and experience God's presence and power and know that we're part of a bigger story of something God might be doing with that brokenness and ache and illness in the moment. It's a hard thing to believe. 
Just have enough, <laughs> enough faith to take the next step towards it. I'm going to say a few more things about healing in the way of clarity. It is God's heart and ultimate will, again, that everyone be healed. But I want to remind you that we're all going to die someday. A long enough timeline, right? God's posture towards me is always my healing. And two, my healing is ultimately in eternity. And so Jesus primarily came to take authority over the evil, the demonic, and heal as proof that he was who he said he was. And the Holy Spirit worked these miracles to do the exact same thing throughout the church. Hey, I'm God, and hey, I'm with you. This is why the church should always extend itself toward the miraculous, because the Spirit wants us to know that he's here and that he's God. There's no formula for healing, which again would have been great. One of the fascinating things Jordan Sang says about studying healing ministry in Scripture is the wonderful, diverse way the many stories of healing unfold. Peter's mother-in-law was healed as soon as Jesus took her hand. But the ten lepers didn't experience their healing until after Jesus was sent, sent them away. Jesus healed a servant's ear by touching it, but the hemorrhaging woman was healed when she snuck up on Jesus and touched him. Jairus' daughter was resurrected from death immediately when Jesus called her, but the blind man in Bethsaida needed Jesus to touch uh, the man, to stretch out his withered hand, and the man was healed, and he tried to do the impossible. But the centurion's servant was healed over a considerable distance by Jesus' word. The paralytic, lowered down to Jesus through a roof, was first forgiven of his sins and then healed. But when Jesus healed the blind, um, sorry, healed the blind man, he assured his disciples that sin played no part in the affliction. Jesus first delivered the hunchback woman from a demonic spirit of infirmity and then touched her spine to heal it. But the Canaanite girl wasn't even present when Jesus delivered and healed through a proclamation to her mom. Jesus distributed healings through touch, commands, declarations. Sometimes he applies a little spit, sometimes mud. Sometimes just touching his cloak was enough. Is there a formula? If you see anybody with a nice one, two, three formula, it's anything more than good general principles, Run. Healing begins with hoping, but it is not passive. Healing is an active confronting of the darkness and all that was broken. And as we hope and as we confront, here's number three. We're almost there. We wait. It's the worst one. Waiting has always been central to God's redemptive story. Always. Comes up way too much for me. Central in that it teaches faith and reliance, and it also just acknowledges the free wills of other people around you. I think sometimes we get into this trap, like the whole world is just like, like built for me. Other people have free will and make choices that God allows. So waiting, healing means waiting. Verse 25, and a woman who was there had been subject for bleeding for 12 years, 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. Forgive me to do a quick version of this for those that are unfamiliar uh, with the text, but just for those of you who know the story well, this hopefully will make sense. They're waiting for a baby. God promises that them that are going to have a baby waited years and years and years, 24 years into their absolute exhaustion, growing distrust in the waiting. There's this part of the story where they break into laughter break into laughter. They're trying to hold on to the promise 
And they just have this moment in the waiting where the years of disappointment cause them to laugh. It's like the ridiculousness of it all. They aren't cynical. It's like this human side of holding on to hope. And they're waiting. And they're wondering when and if this will happen leads to a sort of laughter. And there's two kinds of laughter I want to talk about as we close. Laughter being, again, the human side of it and the heavenly side. In Genesis 18, we read, Then one of them said, I will surely return to you, this is Abraham and Sarah, about, the next, about this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. In other words, the miracle was gone, at least in her mind. And so Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? It's like the most polite way of saying something much angrier. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) That's that's literally in the text. (laughs) There's this earthly laughing, right? In verse 39 of our main story. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Laughter helps us acknowledge the ache of it all. Why would God heal now and not then? Right, we still live in a world full of sin. We don't know how it all works. So there is this really. And as followers of Jesus, we almost can laugh at the hope that we have, the foolishness of it all. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. At once Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him. Power had gone out of him. Jarius, having his daughter healed and hearing Jesus say, don't fear. Jarius didn't know what would happen, but he did know, what he did know (laughs) is that Jesus was present. Maybe Jesus wasn't going to do it in that moment as he sat there with his daughter for whatever reason. Because sometimes healing looks like holding And sometimes God heals by his power and sometimes God heals by his presence, but he always heals. And that is what I mean by a heavenly laughter. There is a foolishness of the great hope that we have. And there are many of us around here who have stories of God's great healing touch in our lives. But then there is the understanding of the healing of heaven. The best picture of heaven is wine. The best vision of heaven really is like God going to get a DJ. I I know some of you are laughing, but literally just that's probably the best picture. The biblical picture is just a party, a feast. It is laughter and joy. This is what the psalmists speak of all the time. Laughter and wine and joy. There's sort of a laughter on one side of pain. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. Like, really, God? Really a miracle? There's a sort of like, you're out of your mind. I don't, I'm going to pray in faith. 
but it's not rooted in nothing. It's that Christian hope of knowing that ultimately we will laugh in a different sort of way on the other side of heaven, partying and rejoicing. I mean, again, this passage ends with go get her something to eat. Go get her something to eat. The laughter becomes heavenly. When we get to see the end, the resurrection, a little bit early, it produces such joy. And so how do we do this? First of all, central to healing is faith. Jesus says even the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. It's just beginning to trust. Trust in the power of heaven, trust in the beauty of heaven, and trust that God, time and time again, because he desires our healing, will rush back into the presence for the sake sometimes of comforting and holding and caring and healing that person then and there, but always for a bigger purpose. Sometimes that, but always for something bigger as a signpost to his kingdom and a picture. Jesus rose from the dead and we're told this is the first fruits of what's going to happen. The resurrection was this hope-filled picture that removed the sting of death Hey, you don't have to fear anymore. Look, I'm allowing the future to rush into the present. Look, this is the miracle. It's two. So one, we have to have faith. Two, we have to ask God to do it. <laughs> We're often kept from asking because we think God doesn't care. Or we like, oh, I need a little more faith. Or prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. I am not a righteous person. We have to ask. God's inviting us this is the whole like undergirding of this first seek season is like you can actually experience the tangible presence of God. You can walk with him. And then lastly, it is taking these four steps. Hoping. Being aware of the confrontation that is there in front of you. You by just declaring this and praying for this are confronting the powers and evil of this world. <laughs> Waiting. Waiting on the Lord, trusting his providence and his care. And then laughing. And laughing. So in a moment, I know we're running a bit late today, but that's okay. We're going to open up the altar. And this, by the way, will continue. By that, I simply mean this front area. And this will continue on Tuesday. It will be a really a night geared around healing as we kick off our home church season. Healing of our soul. Healing of our hearts. Healing of our bodies. Some of you, the physical, symbolic act of even like praying for healing over here, there's just... Um, a table full of candles. And so whether that's like you need to be healed or, or someone you want to pray for healing for someone, come forward. Maybe just that first step of hoping that God might want to transform whatever it is. Allowing this to be a moment where you open yourself up in faith. Charles Spurgeon said, it is not every contact with Christ that saves men. It is the arousing of yourself to come near to him 
the determinate, the personal, resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ that saves. So we heal in Jesus' name now as a sign of the ultimate healing that we will all get to experience. We lay hands on one another. You may need someone to come and just lay hands on you. Hands are representative. This is literally a command, like come and allow the leaders, elders in the church Brothers and sisters, lay hands on one another. It is, this, it is this representative picture that is as surely as my hand is touching you, you can be touched by God. As surely as I'm touching you, you can be touched by God. And lastly, I just leave you with this from R.S. Thomas. We come with nothing but our need. And so whatever faith we have today, whatever internal frustration you feel towards Sunday service planning and knowing like you got to run to whatever's coming next, <laughs> I want to invite you to stay present for a few more minutes here. To internalize, like I come with nothing but our need. I... Lord, I need to continue, as Emily would often tell us, right? We need to keep coming to the altar. I need to keep coming for healing and keep coming to remind myself day after day of God's healing presence with me. As surely as my hand is touching you, you can be touched by God. So let's come and experience the power and the presence of God together. Holy Spirit, Would you come? Like I, I, um, I have to go back and grab the guitar and sing a little bit more, but I, I belong at this altar along with the rest of my sisters and brothers in need of your healing, in need of your restoration, needing of your touch, of the healing oil that replenishes and refreshes. I thank you for the great hope that we can hold on to. That you will wipe away every tear. So I pray that you would stir up faith in this moment. I have like a vision of people just turning to one another in the pews and just going, hey, I don't really know you super well. Would you pray for me? But just remind me. Remind me of your presence, of God's presence. <laughs> sometimes, friends, God heals by his power. And sometimes God heals by his presence. And whatever it may be today, my invitation to you is to take a step of faith. And so, as you come forward, Turn to your neighbor, take a knee in the aisle, 
raise your hands and surrender or bow your head. Spirit, come.